Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. And after many years of trying to be other things, I can't be other things. You've got to be, this sounds so cliche, you've got to be you. So here I am trying to write letters while everyone's designing apps. Recording this intro just after interviewing this episode's guest, and I'm still buzzing for the conversation. Melanie and I create settings where people can do creative things, things that they might not have done for a very long time. And the impact that it's having on people is remarkable. She's also a pretty amazing person in terms of her own journey and how through judgment and adversity, she's stuck to what she knows she needs to do. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk to Melanie Knight on the subtle disruption of reawakened creativity. Well, where have you chosen for our conversation today and why have you chosen this place? We are in my home and specifically in my studio because this is where I spend most of my time and it's incredibly beautiful, this view with the trees. If I stick my head out, you can smell the salty water. It's beautiful, a beautiful aspect, especially in the afternoon with the sunlight. I've got my desk, got all my books, got all my papers got all my carving and clay and rhino printing and my writing kit, so it makes the most sense. This is where everything happens for many hours of every day. Yeah. Yeah. It is a beautiful creative space. Like it's got, like you say, it's got some amazing natural light. It feels very quiet, so you can, just enough sort of nature sound in here. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. that's what a good, a dead end street is good for. Yeah. Very low, minimal traffic. Yeah. (laughs) And you're saying... We're in, like, Bayside, Melbourne, against the beach, and before we started recording, you were talking about how much you feel it as soon as you get a certain distance from the water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's some sort of connection, and the further away I get, it's it's some kind of emergency system goes off inside of me, and it's like there's too much concrete around. (laughs) So it's always a relief to come back and, and see the water and lots of trees and more space. It's a very privileged thing to have, you know, live in a suburb with so much space. It's not a lot of um, apartment blocks and that kind of living. Um, Not particularly keen on there being lots of bars and lots of things and lots of stuff. I just like there being a lot of space. Yeah. So I've got it here. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my life's been more north side and I do... Like, part of me wants more of this, Mm. I guess. I don't know if it'll ever happen in my life because most of my life sort of oriented around the North Side as well. But you were also saying that a lot of your work is actually drawn that way as well. The audience, it's just a a bigger audience. And, again, even the infrastructure around running events, there's more venue options. Mm. It's just... For me and my experience, the north side is much better for that than the south side. Uh, There's a lot of creativity and little innovative projects and people that are super open to collaborating that for whatever reasons I just haven't tapped into in the south side. And again, I think I'm a bit of an oddity in that I choose to live here even though everything's mostly happening over there. And it's no big deal. You listen to a, a podcast while I'm driving. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's fine. It's 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 not that big of a big of a trip. And we've made the decision time and time over. Do we live closer to what we do? Mm. And the answer is always no, because we'd go nutty without being close to the water every day. And so we have so we stay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. Absolutely. Everything from, you know, from Brunswick through to 
Thornbury and, you know, whatever's in between is where I'm mostly popping up yeah. with stuff. Yeah, lots of little lovely venues and spaces to work inside of. Mm, no one set space. One day maybe I'll have my own space. Yeah. Probably Northside. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the case yet. Yeah. We can dream. So tell us about some of these pop-up things that you are doing. Yeah, the, um, what it is that I do I've called um, creative social movement, which is um, in essence creative interventions for people who I think by and large um, are stripped of their creativity for many, many, many reasons um, and I'm determined that it's a part of their well-being to be creative and so I do everything I can to get them to spend a couple hours and give themselves permission to be creative. So the idea being creative, being social and a movement in that it's expanding beyond one city. The Something that I've been doing for 13 or 14 years is called Dr Sketchy's Anti-Art School, which is a collision of performance and visual art sort of turned life drawing on its head back in the day when it started. The only places to do life drawing was CAE and, you know, TAFE courses at night when they'd open up to do, you know, a six-week adult learning program. And I was not into it. I was doing it and I just was so bored. And an illustrator in New York started up this thing where she was getting burlesque performers and the best of the underground up on stage to perform and then you got to draw them. And it was just made perfect sense because that was my world. It was what was happening in Melbourne. There were maybe three burlesque troops at the time in Melbourne and um, I just contacted them and said, hey, I'm going to do some life drawing and I'd like you to do it. And they thought that that was wonderful and I got in touch with the beautiful iconic butterfly club who was originally in South Melbourne and they're big champions of new work and they said yes as well and so I told this girl in New York can I do it and she's like shit yeah um did it had the age come in and take photos and then the next thing I you know we know it's in 150 cities around the world and it's still going and it's huge and it's the most wonderful thing and the the more you participate the more you realize it's not as um well trivial and simple as just I'm going to to draw to improve my drawing it's not transactional in that way it's really participatory in that a performer gets up on stage as a persona and has that kind of mask that they're presenting and giving you permission to watch them they move around a lot there's lots of music and then they dash off and they're gone and I'm asking them can you please stay on stage for two hours and have that presence and have a whole audience of people stare at you and and draw you And they say yes, and that's a really vulnerable thing for them to do. And the idea of sketches is that it's for people that don't go to life drawing. So, again, bringing it back to the idea that I want everybody to be creative. It's not people that just want to do life drawing. This is someone that is too embarrassed to do drawing because they say, oh, I'm not good at that. Oh, no, no, I haven't drawn since primary school. Like, shut up pick up a pencil and do it because I promise you you'll be smiling in 10 minutes and you'll feel like the five-year-old kid when you were drawing and you will remember and I pluck at that sentimentality and say remember how good this felt why why did you stop because someone said you couldn't make money out of it or because someone gave you a, a d instead of an a and on something so beautiful and subjective you were you were graded and so or because you work eight hours and you're really tired all of these things people are not creative if I make a really gentle unjudgmental and extremely fun space 
The performer's vulnerable on stage doing something they don't normally do. People are in there to do life drawing and they don't normally do that. And everybody sort of is a bit giggly and nervous at the start and then turn the music up and I sound like an idiot on the microphone anyway and everyone starts drawing and laughing and having fun and at the end of the session there's this overwhelming sense of pride. They, They did the thing, they did it joy and gratitude for the model and they walk up and they show they offer their their sketch and the the performer is so feels so loved and seen and what that is 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 empathy empathy for themselves and for each other they they did a thing and it was really different and they wake up the next morning and, and hopefully that goes out into the world with them yeah I started studying a, a master's of of art therapy, again, this trajectory of, 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 of wellness is not necessarily through meditation or yoga or talk therapy. It's connecting with something something else. And for me, I believe that's creativity and the idea that not everybody has words, but you might have movement or you might want to scribble or, or beat a drum or whatever it is. And so I wanted to deepen my ability to facilitate. And I realised that although sketches is a really fun, safe place to get people to be creative, at the end of the day, some people just don't like drawing. I just don't like yoga. <laughs> and I know everybody's like, but you calm down and whatever it is and it's really good for me, but it's not me. I've got a, a very frenetic energy and I've got a certain output and my version of yoga is is my creative flow. And so I really that really impacted me and I sat with that, how do I reach more people? And through this process of really trying to find other ways to offer other creative outlets and, and what that would look like, how do I deliver something that's not drawing, writing? I'm, I'm very bad at music. Like I, that's something I just can't do um, because I'm terrible Um, but I write a journal constantly um, and I write letters to my daughter and to myself and so always writing and through um, my studies as well there's a lot of writing Um, and so it's like I, I, I want writing to be this new modality that I can offer to people how do I do that? If I tell people to come down and do two hours of short, you know, writing short fiction, everybody's going to flip it. They're going to feel like a year 12 exam. That's a <laughs> yeah. shit idea. How can I make it safe and fun and intimate? And like always, I don't want things to be transactional in, oh, there's a model and I draw her and that's it. There needs to be... Um, no one can see my hands wildly moving right now. Um, there, there needs to be a, a deeper exchange for that idea of social, creative social movement. Yeah. Um, and so I was reading Love in the Time of Cholera and one of the characters, the main character, um, sits in an alleyway uh, where there's a whole, like, kind of... Um, little market kind of street and he sits there and people can come and pay him and he'll write a letter for them because they can't write or uh, they don't know what to write or, you know, they um, are not as eloquent as him so he might write to a a wife or a father or a boss or whatever it is he writes for you. Mm -hmm. Similar to that movie with Joaquin Phoenix, um, I think called Her, very similar premise. Yeah. and as I was reading that, I was like, shit, it's letter writing. It's letter writing. I'm going to do a thing about letter writing, but what do I do? How do I make it safe? I need people to always be safe. Um, it's like, well, it's, um, this guy is pretending to be that, that person, so why don't I have people pretend to be someone else? And then actually they are creative writing, but they think they're writing a letter and they've already immediately, by saying you've got to write a letter, 
the intimacy of a letter is very immediate. You don't worry about, oh, the narrative and who's the, this character and who's that character and, like, you might if you want to write a, a story. You just write, it's conversational. Um, and that gives them that really easy platform to jump from. Okay, now I'm, you know... Um, the tooth fairy is an example I use a lot and all of it instantly they're the tooth fairy and they can go and write what is in essence a story and uh, how though do they witness and 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 exchange with other people in the room though writing a letter and then and that's the end of it is is not a very good idea um and after a, a year or so um of messing around with um, my daughter Violet's toys and pretending to do this letter-writing exchange thing, I came up with this very convoluted um, parlour game. It's a dead le- it's, and it's called Dead Letter Club. And so Dead Letter Club is this high-concept parlour game, really, that's played through um, letter-writing. Um, people come along and assume an identity of their own creation and write a letter to another made-up identity. And I've got this secret, these mail bags behind you, the black mail and the scarlet letters. Mm. And the letters will fly around the room throughout the night and um, a letter will land in front of you and you'll become that person that it was written to and you'll embody that person right back. Meanwhile, your other character's over there and the letters, the way I've worked it is that I know who has the letters and so you will, in fact, keep corresponding with the same person in the room. You don't know who they are. I do. You don't know who they are. And you're developing these characters and you've, by the end of the night, made a spontaneous, collaborative short story with a stranger. Yes. That's very beautiful. Wow. It's very powerful for, for people when the letter ends up on their desk and the, and it's the story's been growing and they're like, what have they replied? What have they said? Who is it? Who am I? Who am I? Who, who is this? Who's the tooth fairy? Where are you? Yeah. And I invite them again, as I, I mentioned a couple of times, I, people need to feel safe. So there's an invitation at the end of the night. If you would like to find out who you've been writing to, have a wander around the room and ask, were you such and such or were you such and such? please know that they might not reply and that's okay because a lot of people just really love the anonymity. It gives them a lot of freedom to be creative. It's completely judgment-free. No one knows. And it's really, I've found in talking to people, the idea of going out into the world after having that experience and not knowing if the person you were corresponding with was the guy with the grey hair or the girl with the pink mohawk. You don't know. But what you know is that they are capable of writing a really wonderful little piece of creative writing and that's a very beautiful thing for us to all remember what we're capable of mm. and what others are capable of outside of our, our day jobs and whatever other things prevent us from sitting, you know, at our own table once we've had dinner, once the kid is in bed, once we've finished studying, whatever it is, to just sit and deepen into your own imagination and your own potential. And my driver for that is that empathy is not possible without imagination. If you can't imagine someone's position, you can't be empathetic. It's necessary. And so by helping being people be creative... I'm reminding them that they do have an imagination and that in effect gives empathy and hopefully it makes for social change. It's a, it's a small thing but it has a, a big goal and that's to make people well and therefore the community well through remembering that you're creative and it's really important right now because the world is getting weird with this the whole infotech revolution and it's quite frightening and I read about it a lot and I think that I'm really quite mad trying to do these analog events in this age where everybody's I'm a startup and I make apps and tech tech and online this and I'm just like do you want to write letters (laughs) but I think it's vital because I do see as, as well in trying to follow all this stuff and 
how we're going to be destroyed by AI, that there is a big swing now with making sure that there's human-centred this or that with growing companies and stuff like that. But when I do see this human-centred kind of training, it's still not deep enough. Mm. Sure, you're talking about humans. It's like, you know, the human-centred this, so write five words every line instead of ten because then people progress faster vertically and so then they stay hooked and so that's more human. than It's like, but it's still about the sell or the product or the transaction or, and sure, and it's just about like leveraging or manipulating what it is to be human but not getting people to feel like they're human. Mm-hmm. And you can feel human when you create. We are born to tell stories. We're born to be curious. And tech is just instead feeding us and that's my take on it anyway and it sounds a bit harsh I don't totally hate it and stuff I'm all about it but uh, I would like to make sure the scales are a bit more even than what they are currently I I feel and a big part of that is that people of our age I like I was saying before I tap into sentimentality they remember what it was like to write letters I wrote letters to my friends in high school about how they made me feel really sad or the party or whatever it is. There was heaps of stuff. You wrote a letter to Dolly Doctor. You know, there was, there was letter writing. There was drawing. It was a, a lot of that stuff was, was happening. And so when I get people to come in and, and do this, the, the power is that I've been able to remind them, you remember you did do it and you let it go and that's going to be a little bit sad and, but now you're here and that's really great. And my concern is that what's happening now, I've got nieces and nephews and a daughter um, and I worry that there's not enough of that opportunity being given to them for when they get to my age and they've made a few shitty decisions with working office jobs for fear of, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, And they wonder why they feel a bit beige. Um, They don't have anything to draw back on and be like, oh, but remember when I created? Yeah. That felt really nice. And a big thing for me is the word creativity versus artistic and artist. I don't really like those words because it suggests a level of um, professionalism or or, or um, commodification and, and that kind of thing, we're all creative. You don't have to have an outcome of an exhibition. You can just do it because it makes, makes you feel really good. Yeah. Just like people dance but they don't feel obliged to become a champion ballroom dancer, why do people stop making art because they're not going to have an exhibition? I, I, it, I find it very curious. Um, It's the first thing that gets cut. Um, I do also. um, I have the the um, the the great pleasure of working for Art Education Victoria um, for art teachers, and um, it's really interesting this this idea of STEM instead of STEAM, and it's um, it's upsetting to think that STEM is, is such a focus, but really, like I said, with, without the ability to imagine, how far can we really get with tech, with community, with, with, with anything? We need to have the arts. You, yeah. you need to be create, have critical and creative thinking. It, it, it's necessary. Thinking about it from that wellbeing point of view um, is that I think a a lot of us are like, I, I can't put a percentage because I haven't done the research, but I think there's an, a, an overwhelming amount of us that might feel a bit um, unsatisfied or, or, or melancholy even for part of the time of our life, but not to the point where we need to go and see a therapist. I think, and, and I think that's a, the, probably the majority of society doesn't necessarily need to go see a therapist, but they do need to self-care more 
And like I said, I get a bit ticked off with the whole go exercise, go do yoga, go be mindful thing. And um, it's so easy to make a, you know, a photo of yoga look good and, 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 and have it become very pop. It's, it's really easy to trade. Mm. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons why people can't be physical. Um, and some, it's a, and I've explored a, a lot of those reasons and seen a, a lot of those reasons why people just can't do that. And so I would hope that one day people will remember that creativity is a way to take care of, is to self-care as much as a spa or, yeah, the, the treadmill or whatever it is they, they choose to do. I wish that people would remember as well that, um, sitting down with a group of people and, and, and writing or drawing or humming, I don't know, whatever modality it is that, that blows your hair back, that they do that because those are the things that were celebrated when we were younger yeah. um, as being necessary. Um, I don't want that to go away when we're older. That's what I do. Amazing. Whoa. <laughs> Dead letter club. That's the thing that I do. That's why I do it as well. We probably... <laughs> um, I've actually, I just recently, um, what's been overwhelming is, so Dead Letter Club's only like been out in the, in the real world for, uh, not that my world's not real, as in the general public, about... 14 months, mm. and through the wonder that is technology, it has spread around the world through social media and some really lovely interviews and some really lovely press that got me some global attention. And there's people now around the world that want to set up Dead Letter as well. So it's, that again, that idea of it being a movement that yeah. there's I create a, a frame and people come inside the frame and then they do what they want mm. and that that can be delivered out around the world, not just Melbourne. And so that's really exciting, the thought that this year it might be in, you know, I've got emails from Philadelphia and mm. New York and the UAE and wow. it's just wild. Yeah. So we'll see where where that goes. And, in fact, it's true people do want to write letters and do want to play. Yeah. People want to play. But having said that, I also got an... Like my my emails and people send me letters as well, saying I I can't do this or my town is too small or what about real letters and I was like okay I don't have the brains to set this up as an online platform nor really the interest and then I got this extraordinary email from a seventy six year old man who lives in rural New South Wales and just said. The subject was like, me too, please. He explained the town that he lives in is largely a tourist town and there's only a few locals, certainly not enough to sustain a dead letter. Um, how could I make it so that he could write because he really misses writing? And he suggested, what about if you set up emails and there was, a, you know, when the time goes at a certain time, we all write and then you decide who gets the emails. And I was like... Yes, that like I don't know how to build that app or platform <laughs> or whatever though, but I know, I know, right? I know. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The kicker of the email was that he then shared a story that he remembered when he was a boy of his mum and his mum put an ad in the Woman's Day or some publication like that at the time. So we're talking like the 40s, I guess, mm. and created what she called was the Lordy Lord and the Lordy Lord were letters and a woman would write a letter and there was a list on the front of this book and she would send her letter to the next name on the list. That woman would receive it, would read the letter, would not reply back. Instead, she just contributed an open letter of her own, send it to the next person on the list this went around the country. He reckons there might have been four or five of them, these volumes of letters, open letters written by women in Australia wow. that have annual meetings, but otherwise they never actually 
pen-palled with each other. They just wrote about themselves and sent it to another woman. Like my whole, my jaw hit the floor and I was like, this is the most fantastic thing I've ever heard of. This is so special. How can I do this? And he, you know, he said, people don't love letters like you and me. What do we do? And I was what do I do? What do what do I what do I do? And thinking, 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 and so came up with this thing that just I've started up recently. I bought the PO box, done all the things. I've even started to get letters called the Library of Letters, calling it an archive of humanity. And put a call out because again, thanks to things like social media, I can get a global call out to write an open letter from wherever you are, just about you, about your day, about a memory, write an open letter for it to be added to this library of letters and become an archive of real person's story. And that's this big dream that I have now. And I replied to him and and have told him about it. Very sad to say I haven't had a reply. I don't know what that means yet, but I'll keep sending letters. And so the library of letters is open. I have received some letters from America and England, none from Australia yet. And I hope to maybe get some residencies and ideally get a a van and turn the van into a, a mobile library so I can go and visit regional communities and schools and aged care homes and have them come and read a letter from a life they haven't lived and then contribute a letter with also an option if people do want to supply their address someone might be really moved and want to reply back as well as contribute a letter to the library and so that's a big dream as well again what am I doing I'm like why don't we all write letters (laughs) instead of you know trying to do something that people you know you're supposed to do with technology and stuff but I think it's incredibly beautiful and I certainly hope that it's I've got a van full of letters in another 20 years because I think whatever it is that his mum did is very precious and if we can do that for now in today's world I think it could be a really special thing and the reason why I don't say because I know there's things like that out there that exist online there's websites out there you know not dissimilar to that idea but not the same um, because it is not because it is not the same when you unfold something and see a person's handwriting Mm. if for example so if you get a text message that says I love you and like you don't know the number might be a bit weird but the the point being is that it's in whatever that digital you know, font is the topography of your phone text message. You don't know who sent it because you don't know their number. Um, But your child or your partner or your mum or whoever it is writes, I love you on a post-it note and they're not there and you see it and you're like, oh, that was that person. And you know what, on a different day, the way they write I love you will be different. Did they press really hard? Is it really cursive? Is it you know, really rushed and they just really had to write it to me. And seeing that adds another layer and things are going off in your brain when that happens as well. There's a lot of really important things from that tangible visual place and tactile place with um, looking at a letter, really shaky writing, the child's writing, really cursive writing, you start to not only read the story that they've given you, but you start to form a bigger story based on your observations about how they construct a a mark and that's really special and I'm a bit obsessed. So that's the other thing that I I do. (laughs) (laughs) I think I started crying about three times. (laughs) Um, I do... I feel like I need to just go and get in the car and drive to Adam and Abby and, and see where he is and what's going on. But anyway, yeah, we'll see. He's yeah. wonderful and his mum sounds wonderful. So there you go. Mm. A couple of things that I started thinking about when you were talking, one of them was that I was definitely that person who never thought I could draw, even from a very early age, mm. and can't remember really ever drawing at all. And then having two kids of my own, 
and not wanting them to have that experience and, yeah. and them being, yeah, so free and still like they're nine and seven now and so they're still doing it. I think, yeah, that's pretty good. But what, what I was most interested about is that I would start drawing with them. Like they'd want me to draw. Yes. At first I was very reluctant. I'm like... Yeah. I don't know if I can really do that. And I then, can't draw the crocodile. Yeah, draw that's crocodile. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then simply giving it a go and then realising, oh, wow, that was cool and it felt amazing. And yes. Look, I drew something. Yes. And it is a representation of that thing and the yep. kids love it yep. as well. Yeah. Like, and that being... What made... What happened in... So many of our like people's lives, there was a significant moment when we decided that we had to judge if it was good or bad. Not just the fact that we did it and that's okay. Yeah. What? Like? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. I've got a question a little bit about Mm. you know what's led you to this and your own journey of becoming Mm. a creative person too. The other thing I wanted to talk about too was how you're talking about human centered design and yeah perhaps the limitations of that and it's something that I've been thinking about for a year or two as well and I guess trying to think well what's an evolution on that and it's I've been reading a book called Dark Emu which is about Dark Emu? Dark Emu yeah and it's about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders the real story of what it was like before Europeans came not the story that we've all been told but the story of how things actually were and some of the things that are being uncovered and the amazing stories of the amazing job they did in caring for this continent, mm. how they they set up villages and they, they looked after the land through burning and they developed crops and they harvested fish through amazing traps in rivers. But, I mean, those reading that and then thinking about the post-human centre design, it got me thinking about, you know, there's got to be something, and I think people are already thinking about this, but something about ecosystem-centred design where mm. it's about, yeah. you know, us living in a real world and not just us but also all the other things around us as yes. well and getting us to engage with that. But anyway, I don't know, do you have any thoughts about that? No, it's true, and that's why like, as well I guess for me what resonates is that idea that, I could do workshops. I could say, come and I'll teach you printmaking. Come and I'll do life drawing. Come and we'll do some letters and stuff and I'll tell you a bit of the history of letter writing and help you write a letter to your nana. Mm. But for the the twist and what I work really hard on with concepts is how do I get people to engage with the space that they're in and the people that they're with in a super subtle way so they're not frightened or feel judged or they don't judge they didn't realize that they did it but then some they actually just did it and I can only hope that through creating that empathy it would lead and that imagination it would bring them back to their environment as well haven't tapped into anything with a connection to land environment or other living things that are not human but surely once we hit like a wellspring of Mm. empathy and that kind of then it becomes more accessible to think of those kind of problems and and how to solve them that sounds fascinating that book and and I think that's exactly what needs to happen like everything with like the you know like the crest of any of those waves it comes crashing and it's Mm. disruptive and la la and it's also a bit like oh well you know wasn't all good but we sort of learn by actually going a bit too far Mm. and that's where I feel it's at now and just like good on you with your human-centered stuff but I'm not buying entirely. I'm not sure that we're still getting to the human bit just yet. You're yeah, just figuring out yeah. a better way to sell to the human or to get <laughs> yeah. the human to use it or, or mm. whatever or do it and that's not quite enough. Yeah. It's not responsible enough. Yeah. Can you tell us then about your journey to, yeah. to how you got here? Have you had some creative disruptions that yeah. you know, blocked you or yeah, yeah. how did you get to this point? I've always been a little a little strange girl as a kid, very creative and a bit of a solo person. My nick 
name was Melancholy for part of my early teen years, which was not very nice. <laughs> Constantly drew, illustrated the books that I drew, illustrated to the music that I listened to, was always that way inclined and had this odd compulsion, which I still have and I'm now very grateful for, but I did really beat myself up over it where I was compelled to make and express the way I needed to and make my art and it did not make a lot of people happy and a lot of people were a bit weirded out by it or questioned it or wondered what was going on for me, especially considering that I went to a girls' school, a Catholic girls' school, and I'd had my work deinstalled from exhibitions on opening night once I'd set it up and stuff like that, but I never stopped. I never stopped doing it. That does not make sense to me. I can only do myself. But I went through a lot of pain being myself because I never fit. And so post high school, went to tertiary studies for fine art and was brokenhearted because even though I might have been in a fairly rigid girls' school structure my art teachers were really beautiful people and I was allowed to be an oddball and went to the tertiary and found that it was a business and it was completely uninspired and they were there to make a a paycheck and they were not there to help develop my critical and creative thinking and inquiry as to why I make things the way I make them and what I might want to do. And I just stopped going. I literally just stopped going and I guess I failed. Don't know. Never went back. And and that set me off on a path of, well, I better get a job. And so got a job in an office, did a business uh, administration course and all that kind of world. And By the time I was uh, 25, 26, was suffering from um, shocking anxiety and um, a very sad, a very sad person and, um, but still made art um, because I could feel it all the time. I felt sick. I, I felt sick. I knew I was sick. I was becoming catatonic sometimes or having anxiety attacks Um, and realised with the passing of my father, which is a fairly um, traumatic event, um, um, he was um, attacked and it it was a a very sad uh, way for someone to then lose their life, Um, but it gave me great pause about, well, we have one life. Stop wasting time. Um, And I was very well. I did my grieving and um, think very, very fondly of no matter how tragic the circumstances were um, and his life was about the, the deep gratitude for what I learned because of that experience. Um, don't bullshit. Everything is that like there's beauty and we have a, a that and there's an ability to um, make the most of, of certain things. I do not at all discount someone that's going through dark times because I've had them. Um, but as a, a process of the grieving, um, decided this office life is not for me. What ha- what am I doing? I'm not well. I'm not well. Um, so I left. I was working for a very large arts um, organisation, an orchestra, and uh, left to become a tattooist. So that was cool and a bit different and that was I was just in my element and I loved it. Being with people, um, tattooing was what I always loved and it was it was a really happy time and I was making art and drawing um, and that sort of ended up um, not turning out as I had planned, which is fine because I was doing, I started Dr Sketchies and art was 
and community were really big passions of mine and it seemed that that was always doing better than tattooing. Along came um, around that time while I was apprenticing a couple of um, TV shows about tattooing, reality um, launched into the world and became very famous and that changed the that changed the the industry as I knew it and um, and didn't much like dig it after that. So I still I was still tattoo buddies and stuff, but um, stepped away from that world um, and continued to pursue these projects. Um, still not making a great deal of my own art because I never felt good enough to have an exhibition or I thought I can only make art if I'm going to have a show. Am I going to write a book? Am I going to start a blog? All of these things. And I wasn't, I had no intention of doing any of those things, Um, partly because um, I much prefer to help other people do that and be in that space with them. I feel like that's my art. Um, And I don't like that. Yeah, I, that that idea of I make the art and then I put on the show and it's about me and things like that. Not not at all a commentary on anyone else. Art obviously is necessary um, for the world. Uh, it just wasn't where I was at. Um, but so I was still feeling a bit sick, still not doing it. And um, it was when I. I think started thinking about having children and um, became pregnant through a a fairly, um, again, grief-ridden period of IVF that I needed to express myself. There was so much loss and trauma from the IVF and, and what that world holds. The I could not speak, but I was overwhelmed with the need to share. And I drew, there's painting, I drew and I drew and I drew and I showed people the pictures and they didn't ask me any questions because they understood like that. That's how you feel. Oh, my gosh. And I didn't have to speak. And my whole world changed and things, I was able to carry it and I wasn't able to carry it. And then we had Violet. And what's very interesting as a woman is that in the period that I was on maternity leave was my most creative period because it was like I didn't have to justify why I was creative because everyone just backed off. Oh, she's not working because she's on maternity leave. So I was, she was sitting on my lap and I'm just like, no, 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 making, making, making Dead Letter Club, doing all these wonderful things and being so free because I didn't have to answer to anyone about, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I make art and I couldn't say that. I help people make art. Well, that's not a real job and no one asked because it's like, oh, she just had a baby. So there I was finally knowing what it felt like to not have to justify what I'm compelled to do and what makes me feel happy. And so truly that turning point where a switch has flicked that I can't turn off was when I became a mum. Yeah. So pretty recent but a very constant journey of, of carrying the need to be creative. I never really separated from it. I always knew it was wrong when I wasn't doing I could feel I'm not well. No amount of, you know, walking or going on the beach or, or mindfulness apps was going to fix that. I needed to, I need to make. And so I do, apart from dead letter, you know, I make little zines or paint to make clay Dead Letter Club is incredibly grassroots at this point. The everything screen printed or lino cut, all of the envelopes, everything is I make. All the components where you play the game, when you hold it, you can feel the ink on the paper like I've made it. Mm. I'm not sure how sustainable that is, but so there is still a lot of of craft in me delivering these events. There's a lot of me in it. 
Yeah, that's a beautiful story. Thanks. <laughs> that's what happens when you write letters. You're just like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. <laughs> really curious about how you think, like through high school and then perhaps a little bit afterwards and, you know, making such a bold decision to just not go to art school anymore. Like I reflect on myself a little bit when you say that. And I think, wow, I've compromised a lot. <laughs> so yeah. I'm curious about how you think, you know, you had that strength to say all that, that self-awareness and that self-certainty in a way to say, nah, this is what I need to do. Where did, where did that come from? This is very much like defining my entire personality this question (laughs) I don't know but I know that you've nailed it I can't describe why I um, can't filter that I will never make exception even if I agonize over the the judgment or you know even if there is judgment oh well piss off but I will still agonize over it, making those that art in high school, I just could not do something else. It wasn't an option. Mm. I may as well just go and do maths. If I'm not making the art that I need to make, then it's not my, my art anyway. I should just go do geography or something. Not saying that's not creative. I'm just saying it's not my art. Yeah. And then to go to to that institution and feel that people just wanted to get a grade. They were living the stereotype of, oh, well, you just didn't get good enough grades, so you did art and you just want to pass. And it was, it looked from where I was standing that that was true and it looked like the teachers were compliant in that and an accomplice to that and were not trying to inspire anything more. It's like, all right, well, this is the group I've got, so they should probably come to a dead letter or sketches that might fix them. But... um, uh, again, when I don't make, if I do things like that where I'm calling bullshit, I'll, I get a bit kooky and a bit sick. I feel my mental health go down um, and, and and things in my world just, just change. Um, I'm sort of like a, a walking judge and jury all of the time and I have a pretty high... Um, standard of of what I like it's authenticity or bust basically and there's not really any in between so I find um that's why I don't do so well in office situations (laughs) (laughs) not very well um there's there's a few good stories about me in offices um yeah and 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 I, I don't know what it is and maybe I will credit it to my dad when I was a kid with, with him and stuff and love it or hate it, it's just the way it is and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm grateful for it and um, it, it makes me lovable as much as it probably makes you really irritating as well. But um, I think now it's got me, my navigation is true. Mm. So, and I, I'll get... And I, I'm able to to call it myself out because I know what I feel like when I'm not doing it. And um, at 37, that's I feel a bit stupid for only knowing it now, truly um, um, like feeling it in my body. Like mm. you're talking about people connected to the ecosystem, be connected to my body yeah. and knowing it doesn't feel right, not just cognitively like, let's weigh this up, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this should be good though. This is the way. Feels crappy. Call it. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 after many years of trying to be other things, I can't be other things. You've yeah. got to be, this sounds so cliche, you've got to be you. <laughs> so here I am trying to write letters while everyone's designing apps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it, it, it is true. Like, having the experiences, I went up to Brisbane Museum and so there... Um, programming team was able to see what Dead Letter is really capable of and they booked me not to just play it with the general public and have a really nice time 
but they booked me specifically for an exhibition um, called Life in Irons and it was about Moreton Bay Penal Colony, which was one of the very first penal colonies in Australia and was particularly brutal, like famous for its brutality and um, how isolated it was. And so they'd discovered all of these old letters and books of punishment and um, lots and, and lots of different things from the penal colony had been um, found in these other private archives and whatnot. Um, and so what we did was have people walk through the exhibition, read stories from real people from this time, um, and then come and play dead letter as they were as if they were living on the, the penal colony or whatever it is that they'd taken and whatever resonated from their experience of the exhibition. And not to write as a real person, no bad juju in that sense, but to just be inspired. So people were writing back home to England or down to Sydney or as a child or as an officer or you know or the whole gamut. And what that was was a, a learning experience. They were able to experience the exhibition in a very deep way beyond just reading the little, you know, plaque next to each um, display and then walking out. That it was a, a real depth thing into what might it have been like, imagination and empathy and how we then go out and experience the world. And it and it, it was really wonderful. Similar thing, you know, the idea of going into a corporate space and, and a team-building exercise, they've got a problem. All right, anonymity is a great equaliser. Mm. There's a director and there's a secretary and there's the marketing manager and they've all got a different point of view on the current project and what annoys each of them about different aspects in that you play the game and you read the the letters from the point of a consumer or from the point of view of whatever it might be not even human it could be from the point of view of the desk whatever it is and it unlocks a new understanding it's really turned out to be quite powerful so yeah I've kind of only got a couple more questions for you, actually, before we wrap up, if that's okay. Yeah. One of them's about, uh, we started by talking about this space that you're in now. Yeah. And I'm interested in a bit about the process you go through in working here and, uh, yeah, I don't know, your rituals or your daily routine or, mm. you know what, you're a mother, I presume, Violet's at home quite a bit as well, mm. I don't know, but, yeah, just tell us a bit how you go about creating I don't sleep very well, (laughs) I think a lot, and a part of dealing with all of those thoughts and and this drive, this switch that's flicked, um, is journaling. And so every morning I make sure that I get, even if I wanted to sleep, I now know what my values are and I feel much better and have a much better day if when I wake up whatever time it is, that I go and have very quiet time by the windows near the tree writing. Mm. And it could be writing this personal day stuff. Violet, you know, swore yesterday, oh, my gosh, or Violet did this, or, you know, we went here or I'm thinking about this or it could be a to-do list or a dream thing and I just write and write and write and write rather than stay in bed and it's that very quiet time when no one else is awake is really, really precious and that's that starts a, a good day where I output. Don't input first because if I was to get up and be like, I'll start working, I'll get up early and start working and I open up the laptop or, you know, I start archiving the letters or things like that, that's input and I can feel my everything go up. My thinking goes up, my heart, it all, if you output first, it's just like this breath. Mm. It's And so that's how I ideally like to start. Or it could be writing a letter. 
feel a bit better, get anxious when I don't reply back to people as well. Mm. Uh, it's not as quick as an email. So even writing a letter, I feel a great sense of accomplishment. And then, yeah, it's those, those routines, those mum routines or parent, rather, parent routines come back and we'll just deal with the whatever is present at that time, a festival or a workshop or literally reading the letters. I have the very great pleasure of all of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories. Mm. They're in boxes mm. all around us. Yeah. And, and, and reading them because I want to get them out in the world. We're working on a project where we get people to come along and, and read them, be recorded on, on video and make a little YouTube or, or whatnot. So I'm reading these wonderful stories. And I get to, you know, call that, well, I don't get paid for it, but that's my work. Because it keeps informing the project and so I'm just constantly building opportunities, talking with these people around the world and trying to get it get it out there is what consumes what I do currently as well as the art education role. So my day is a little bit of all of those things because it can be mm. and there's a, there's a lot and I, I, I guess right now it is still very, it's still in its infancy, the, the current project and urgency is around getting like a, the kit of parts out to the other cities so they can get it up and, and, and running and see what what happens from from there. Yeah. And by that time I'll probably have another idea <laughs> or a different project <laughs> <laughs> to try and do. Oh, God knows what it would be. And I go back to study now, Violet's daycaring and things like that. So I go back to complete the masters in April, and that in itself, I don't know where it's going to take me. But I'd like to also investigate further, from a research point of view, the link between creativity and well-being. There's not a lot out there, but there is, and the Western, the Western world is really set on quantitative evidence. And things like that, and I'm curious because I see it. I witness. I know. I know. It. I I know the answer, but um, funding agencies and organisations don't want my. They don't want the qualitative and to see the happy person's face. They they want me to show them a graph or something. So, <laughs> yeah. um, research is interesting for me as well right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to try and learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, great. Mm. So that's kind of the day. It's a little bit has to start with the, the journaling, otherwise yeah. it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. One last question for you, which maybe you've covered, but maybe there's something else you can think of. And it's about tying back to the theme of the podcast and subtle disruption and and thinking about your own life and a small thing that you've done at some point or that you do. I mean, the journaling's probably part of this, but a small thing that you do that has had a big impact or a it's an ongoing impact or a big impact at, at a period of time, but it was a relatively small or subtle thing. Is there something else that we haven't talked about that comes to a mind? A small thing that has ha- that someone's done for me or that... That I, you do for yourself. Or, maybe, or that I maybe, do for myself. Yeah, or maybe that's That has a big impact. Yeah. yeah. Small, what's this? I feel like small things happen all the time and, again, especially because of the experience with my, my dad, I'm super aware of them and I think if you're aware of them, small things are happening all the time. Yeah. I think the greatest thing that's had the biggest impact is when someone comes up to me at the end of one of the events and they're very brave and they will come up, often with tears in their eyes, after a life drawing class with a burlesque performer and say, I, I haven't actually done that since primary school. You don't know how happy I feel right now. And I look at their drawings and they, they look similar to primary school. And it's, it's, I mean, it's even in biro, some of them. And it is just the greatest thing I've ever seen. And it's the most beautiful thing to know that they did that. And that keeps me going. Mm. And I could never stop because how could I ever stop help like a person having that chance and that happens both with Dr Sketches and with Dead Letter I guess in more recent times people writing me letters and the man in New South Wales are probably they really it's really quite a small thing to write someone an email or a letter but it's enormous if it lands in the right space Mm. and for me it's small but it's become enormous so that's probably the most significant 
right now is these individuals and I guess that's in proof and it's closing that circle that I know I see the whole community of them being well but only but they each come up to me one at a time Mm. and this idea that if one person is well then it helps the community be well yeah and we can do that together it's not necessarily being only in your own room doing the creative thing it's it's very nice to have that vulnerability together so small things happen all the time yeah watching all them feeling them yeah like so not one i put myself in that space for that to happen though i'm very lucky yeah mm. thank you so much that's Melanie. my it's absolute funny. pleasure it's so good to hear your story and yeah i admire that conviction that you have and i feel inspired by that i'm pleased come yeah next time yeah good (laughs) (laughs) hey thanks for listening if you'd like to get in contact with me the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtle disruptors.com thank you so much to the people that do send me emails i really appreciate the encouragement i really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well many of them have turned into actual guests on this show if you do have any suggestions please send them through Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.